Hey, one day, uh, actually a lot of days, uh, when I was in school, uh, when I was in class, I uh, would fall asleep. I know, I know. I would even fall asleep, like, I had no shame. I would just fall asleep, like, with my head flat on the desk, like, just like this, okay? Now, one day, uh, one time when I was sleeping, uh, I was sleeping, and then all of a sudden, my body was rolled up into, like, a ball. Uh, almost like a wheel of cheese. Like my body was like in a wheel of cheese, but my body wasn't cheese. It was just me, but I was rolled up in a wheel of cheese. And all of a sudden, I was rolling down a cliff. I had no control of my body. I couldn't get out of this wheel of cheese. I was stuck in it. It was rolling down, rolling down, rolling down off of a cliff. I was free falling. I was dreaming. And you're like, wow, that is the weirdest, most obscure dream I have ever heard. I know, I know. Like, my body wasn't cheese. I was in a wheel of cheese, though, and I was rolling down, and it was terrifying. Now, before you go judging me, think about the weirdest dream you've ever had. Like, what's the weirdest dream you've ever had? I'm not going to make you share with your neighbor, okay, this morning. If we did that, we might all leave church this morning. <laughs> We'd just, like, all just be like, uh, I'm not staying here anymore. All right? Now, uh, there are a lot of reasons why we have these like crazy dreams, right? During dreams, our, the emotional and visual processes of our brain are still active, even while our body is like still asleep. In fact, the sleeping brain can build stories better than when it's awake, which is great unless your stories are unpleasant. In fact, the coronavirus pandemic and kind of the forced withdrawal from our normal environments has caused, has resulted in a lot of people reporting these vivid and very unusual, very unpleasant dreams. Researchers have actually developed a name for these coronavirus pandemic dreams. Not a very clever name, but that's what they've named them because of the, as a result of the isolation and the stress and the change in sleep patterns that the, this pandemic has caused, coronavirus pande uh, pandemic dreams. Now, some of you may be like, well, before COVID, I was still having vivid, unusual, unpleasant dreams. My wife is one of those people. She'll have like vivid, very vivid, very uh, unusual, and sometimes unpleasant dreams. In fact, it's not a rare occurrence for us to be sleeping, and I sleep on my side, and I'm laying in bed, and I'm just like clonked out, right? Like I sleep like a rock. And all of a sudden, I'll hear Olivia. She's not shouting, but she's also not whispering. Uh, and she'll be like, Austin, 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 Austin. She's like hyperventilating. Austin, Austin, Austin. Now, this has happened enough. When we first got married, I was like, what, what? Is somebody at the door? Like, what's happening? But it's happened enough now that I know what's going on. She's having a, having a very vivid, very unpleasant dream. And so I'm just kind of clonked out, and I'll hear it. And now we've gotten to the point where I just kind of, I'm, I'm half asleep, and I kind of go, I just kind of toss my arm over. <laughs> I'm just like, hey, it's, it's fine. It's fine. And then we just like go back to sleep or some sort of sleep, whatever you want to call it, right? And there have been a few times where Olivia will wake up, not from a dream, just normally in the morning. She's woken up. Uh, but that night, she's had a very vivid, unpleasant dream where I have done something or said something to make her angry, upset, or sad. And she'll wake up in the morning the dream's over, and she's mad or sad or upset with me. And I'm like, not about something I did or said the night before, the day before, the week before, but something I did in the dream. And I'm like, what am I supposed to do about that? Like, come on. There's a prophet in the Old Testament who had very vivid and very significant dreams. He prophesied to a remnant community of Israelites after their time in exile, and his name was Zechariah. 
And Zechariah's dreams were, they were vivid. They were full of color. They spanned the entire earth and they were full of significance for his people. This morning, I want to look at one of those dreams and one of those visions. And I want to look at what it means for us today, living as Christians, trying to shock the world with the love of Jesus. It's going to actually build off of a lot of what Torin talked about last week. In some ways, it's sort of a part two. Uh, talking instead of inviting to a meal, inviting into our church community. The book of Zechariah uh, is a book divided into two parts, really. The first part, the first eight chapters, are a series of dreams and visions. Each chapter represents a different vision, a different dream. And each dream represents a different way of expressing how God is working providentially on behalf of this newly restored community. You see, the overall central message of this book, of the book of Zechariah, is this. God has everything in place for the rebuilding project. And one of the visions that lies at the center of this message is where we're going to be this morning. It's chapter 3 of the book of Zechariah, verses 1 through 10. So will you turn there with me? If you haven't been in Zechariah in a while, or maybe you've never been there, it's not a super common book, you're going to turn to kind of like the second half of your Bible, like to the New Testament, Matthew, and then maybe just a few pages before that, you'll find Zechariah. And as you turn there, just to set a little bit of context, Zechariah is prophesying to a, a res, uh, the restoration of Judah. So these people have been, they've been conquered, they've been scattered, they've been exiled for the last 50 or 60 years, and now they're coming back together. There's kind of two groups of people, some who have left and are now returning, and others who stayed and lived under the rule of Babylon. And this people, this community is coming together. They're trying to figure out how, what to do. They're trying to rebuild their life and their community, and they're trying to figure out if God is still with them. And Zechariah has a deep desire to speak life into his people, to remind them that God has everything in place for the rebuilding project, and he does so in in this vision. So will you read with me here? I'm going to read the first five verses of Zechariah chapter 3, verses 1 through 5 here. Uh, it, sa- it starts off and it says, then he showed me. So he's, he's starting a new dream, a new vision, new chapter, new dream, right? So he says, then he showed me Joshua. Now when it says Joshua here, I don't want us to think of Joshua in like the sixth book of the Bible or whatever, that guy named Joshua. This is a different Joshua, okay? This is Joshua, the high priest of Israel, of Judah at the time. It says this, Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan, standing at his right side to accuse him. This is an imagery of something called a divine counsel. It's a very popular image that the Old Testament writers use. So it says here, The Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. The angel said to those who were standing before him, Take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to Joshua, See, I have taken away your sin, and I will put fine garments on you. Then I said, Put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him, while the angel of the Lord stood by. And you're like, what is going on here? Like, what is with this dude's filthy clothes? Like, has he been running around sweating? Like, what's going on? Why has he got these filthy clothes? Here's the deal. Prophets use visual imagery to communicate. 
right? And so in this case, Joshua, this high priest, he's wearing these filthy garments. He's wearing these dirty clothes. These dirty clothes represent the sin of his people, the sin of Israel, the people that he serves as the high priest for. And so this angel of the Lord comes to Zechariah in this vision and says to Joshua that your take off the filthy garments. Your sin is no more. Joshua is literally wearing the sin of Israel and this angel of the Lord speaks this sin away and says, your sin is no more, takes the sin away. In other words, God has everything in place for the rebuilding project. Let's keep reading here, verses six through nine. It says that the angel of the Lord gave this charge to Joshua. This is what the Lord Almighty says. If you will walk in obedience to me and keep my requirements, then you will govern my house and have charge of my courts. And I will give you a place among these standing here. Listen, high priest Joshua, you and your associates seated before you who are men symbolic of things to come. I am going to bring my servant, the branch. See the stone I have set in front of Joshua. There are seven eyes on that stone and I will engrave an inscription on it, says the Lord Almighty, and I will remove the sin of this land in a single day. So the angel of the Lord comes and and says that Joshua, if you remain faithful, if you remain obedient, you will serve as the high priest. And then the angel of the Lord keeps going and, and, and says that I will bring to you a branch. And we're like, what's this branch? Like, what's going on? Now, for reasons we don't have time to get into, we know that Zechariah is referring to this guy named Zerubbabel. Everybody say, Zerubbabel. That's a fun name to say, right? Zerubbabel. Name your first child Zerubbabel. It's a good time. Go for it, right? Zerubbabel was a descendant of David. And Zerubbabel at the time, he was a civil leader. Think of like like a mayor, okay? And so what we have here in these three verses, verses six through nine, is this angel of the Lord coming and saying, putting Yahweh's stamp of approval on the two leaders of Israel who are going to help lead and rebuild this entire community. Puts the stamp of approval on Joshua, the high priest, and Zerubbabel, the civil leader, and says, these two people are going to help rebuild and restore the Israelite community. In other words, God has everything in place for the rebuilding project. And then we read the last verse. It's where I want to kind of focus in on this morning. It says here in verse 10, after all this stuff, it says that in that day, each of you will invite your neighbor to sit under your vine and fig tree, declares the Lord Almighty. I want to read that again. In that day, each of you will invite your neighbor to sit under your vine and fig tree, declares the Lord Almighty. So as a result of all of this stuff, as a result of God having everything in place for the rebuilding project, when things are restored, when things are rebuilt, when things are made right, it says the result of this is that each of you will invite your neighbor to sit under your vine and fig tree. On August 28, uh, 1963, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. delivered a famous speech at the March, March on Washington for jobs and civil freedom. The speech was titled... I have a dream, that's right. In the speech, King called for changes that needed to be made. He called for an end to racism. And he used this phrase, I have a dream, over and over and over again. Now, whether it was his intention or not, nearly 60 years later, this phrase, I have a dream, has come to symbolize and signify the way that we as humans should treat one another. In the speech, King said that I have a dream that little black boys and girls will be able to join hands with little white boys and girls as sisters and brothers. 
He said, I have a dream that the sons of former slaves and slave owners will be able to sit down at the table of brotherhood. You notice I do not sound near as cool as Dr. King. He also said this, now is the time to make justice a reality for all God's children. You see, when we hear the phrase, I have a dream, our minds are taken to a better world. Our social imagination is filled with images of love and peace, of justice and understanding. And that's kind of what this phrase, under vine and fig tree, operated as. This phrase, uh, it concocted in the ancient social imagination images of, of love and peace, of justice and understanding, of equal economic opportunity, of prosperity. The phrase was a symbol of blessing. We see it throughout Scripture. We see it in 1 Kings chapter 4. It's, it's a, as a result of the successful rule of Solomon, it says that every man will sit under his vine and fig tree. We see it in the book of Micah, the, Micah's vision of the mountain of God. As a result of God's presence, every man will sit under his vine and fig tree. What Zechariah is saying here is that there is a new day of peace and prosperity and safety upon us. That the rule and reign of God is making all things new, is rebuilding all things, is making all things right. And as a result of that, we are able, each of us, to invite our neighbor to sit under our vine and fig tree. To invite our neighbor into our lives, to experience our blessing to sit under vine and fig tree. Some of us this morning, we have lots of vine and fig trees. We have lots of spaces that uh, are marked with peace, marked with prosperity. They're places that, that are our blessing that we can invite others into and they can experience that and we can share that with them. We have lots of vine and fig trees here this morning. I, I have no doubt. And some of us, though, are like, I don't have any vine and fig trees. I got no places where there's peace, prosperity, blessing that I can invite people into. You're wrong this morning. Each of us, we all have a vine and fig tree. It's actually the most important vine and fig tree that we have. In fact, you're sitting under it this morning. It's our church community. That's our vine and fig tree. And when we invite people into it, when we invite them to sit under this vine and fig tree, when we invite them into our church community, we literally participate in God's kingdom. We point to an alternate reality. We point to the person of Jesus and we showcase the generous love of Jesus. The central question being asked of Zechariah at the time that he was writing this, at the time that he's recording these visions was this. Is God's kingdom coming soon? Like when is our suffering going to end, Zechariah? Why is this happening? What are we supposed to do? When are things going to be made right? Zechariah, when is God's kingdom coming? And Zechariah's response throughout the entire book really is to kind of flip this question on its head and ask the people, will you become people who are ready to participate in God's kingdom? Will you become people who pursue justice and peace? Will you become people who are faithful? Will you become people who invite others to sit under your vine and fig tree? You see, I think that many of us this morning, we find ourselves in a similar situation. 
We've, the last year and a half has felt like exile. We've been conquered. We've been scattered. We feel like our life is a rebuilding project. And I think many of us are asking God, we're saying to God, God, when are you going to show up? Like, when is our suffering going to come to an end? When are you going to take control? When are you going to make things right? When are you going to shock the world? When are you going to shock me and show up? And I think that through the scriptures of Zechariah, this prophet, his visions, I think that through those this morning, God wants to flip the question on its head and ask of us, will you become people who are ready to participate in my world-shocking way of life? You're asking when it's going to happen. It's available to you now if you want it. Will you become people who pursue justice and peace? Will you be faithful? Will you become people who invite others into your life, into your blessing, into your vine and fig tree? You see, friends, if we want to shock the world with the love and the power of God, it starts with living invitationally. Inviting others into our lives, inviting others into our blessing, like Torrin talked about last week, inviting others into our meals, inviting others into our experience with Jesus, inviting others into our church community to sit under our vine and fig tree. Jesus embodies this kingdom of God stuff. Right? Jesus participates in this earth-shattering, world-shocking way of life. So it's no surprise that Jesus is the type of person who invites others into his life, invites others into his blessing, invites others in to sit under his vine and fig tree. And one of his vine and fig trees, one of the places, one of the locations and spaces that was a, a place that Jesus could invite people in where there was equality, where there was prosperity, where there was blessing, was at the table. Meals. Torin talked about this last week. And Torin actually mentioned this guy named Zacchaeus, right? There was this guy named Zacchaeus we see in, the, in chapter 19 of the Gospel of Luke, we see this incredible illustration of this invitation stuff that we're talking about. And Torin did a great job walking through all the, some of the details, some of the background, some of the context. If you missed it, go back and watch it. I don't, I don't need to repeat it this morning. He did get one thing wrong, though. He said that maybe that Sunday school song, Zacchaeus was a wee little man. I'm asking you to sing with me. A wee little man was he. Yeah, Torm was like, maybe he wasn't. Nah, I've never learned anything in Sunday school that was false, okay? So Zacchaeus was a wee little man, all right? And Torin talked about last week, Zacchaeus, he's, he's a tax collector, right? He's hated, he's despised. Trust me, no one in Jericho liked this guy, Zacchaeus, right? And Jesus is passing through Jericho to get to Jerusalem, and Zacchaeus runs up into this sycamore tree. Torin showed a picture of a sycamore tree. They're, they're, not, they're kind of high, but they're also really dense. And Zacchaeus climbs up in, and he climbs up in because he wants to see this Jesus. And no one, he seems, it seems like he can't see Jesus. It says that in the Gospel of Luke. You can only imagine, as Torin was sharing last week, I could only imagine the pleasure of some of Zacchaeus' neighbors. They can't stand this guy. And this Jesus of Nazareth is passing through. You can only imagine the pleasure that some of his neighbors had as they boxed Zacchaeus out, preventing him from seeing Jesus, preventing him from experiencing Jesus. So Zacchaeus climbs up into this tree, right? Because he wants to see Jesus. But that's not the end of the story. Because Jesus sees him. That's not the end of the story because Jesus sees him. And he says to Zacchaeus, come down, you must come down immediately. I must stay at your house. 
And as Torin was sharing last week, as I was preparing this week, I was laughing because all of this happens under a sycamore fig tree. And as Torin was sharing, I was building this week, I, I, I had a thought. I realized that I think all of us, we all have a Zacchaeus in our lives, just waiting to be invited in. Invited into our lives, invited into the table, invited in to our church community, the most important vine and fig tree that we have. You see, there is a Zacchaeus in each of our lives just waiting to be invited in. Waiting to be invited into our lives, waited in to be invited at the table, but most importantly, waited to be, waiting to be invited in to sit under our most important vine, vine and fig tree, our church community. There's a Zacchaeus in each of our lives waiting to be invited in. Who is yours? Who is your Zacchaeus? Is it someone here at TLC maybe who you've noticed comes in and out every Sunday morning waiting for someone to stop them, but no one seems to ever stop them? This place doesn't feel like a vine and a fig tree to them. It doesn't feel like a church community. It feels like a place they come in and they leave and no one seems to ever stop them. Maybe it's that person for you. Maybe it's a friend or a coworker, a teammate, a classmate, someone who you used to be close with, you haven't talked with in a while, and you haven't seen them in even longer, and you know that they could use you right now, and even more importantly, they know that you know that they could use your vine and your fig tree, your church community. Or maybe it's your neighbor who just moved in from across town. Maybe it's your neighbor who's been there longer than you have and they seem to want to connect, but every time you see them, you're too busy trying to get from Jericho to Jerusalem to stop and actually connect with them, to invite them under your vine and fig tree, to invite them into your church community. See, there's a Zacchaeus in each of our lives waiting to be invited in. Who is yours? If we want to be people who shock the world with the love and the power of God, it starts with living invitationally, to inviting others into our lives, into our blessing, into our vine and fig tree, into our church community. So each week we've been having this like homework assignment, right? We've been having this thing that we're doing, we're committing to, to do together, to live our lives daily with Jesus, to, to say we're going to shock the world with the love of Jesus with these simple tasks. It's kind of like a homework assignment that we're committing to together. And this week, our homework is really simple. We're going to invite someone to sit under our vine and fig tree. We're going to invite someone to sit in our church community. Now, you may have to invite them and just be like, hey, do you want to come to church? They're like, yeah. Or you might have to be like Jesus and be like, hey, I must stay at your house. I must go to church with you, and you're coming with me. Each of you were given an invite card. It looks like this when you walked in. Or maybe you're sitting on it. It might have been on your seat. It's in my pocket somewhere. Let me find it. Ah, that pocket. There we go. It looks like this. This is an invite card. You'll see it says, you are invited. Sundays, 9 and 11 a.m. It's got our information on it. This is a tool for you. This is your task this week. To find your Zacchaeus and to invite them to sit under your vine and fig tree. To invite them into our church community. 
Here's the deal. We're doing this stuff, this shock the world stuff. We don't want it necessarily to stop after a five-week series is over, right? This is something that we want to become a part of our culture, a part of our, as a community, the things that we participate in. So here's the deal with these invite cards. We got like 500 on the printer, okay? They're coming. They're going to be here to stay. So here's the deal with these things. If you don't have one of these in your pocket, Torrin says, I didn't say this, Torrin says that you should feel naked without one of these things, all right? You should feel naked without one of these things, without the easy opportunity to sit and to invite someone to sit under your vine and fig tree to say, hey, I'm participating in God's kingdom. I'm showcasing an alternate reality. I would love for you to be a part of it. Come join this church community. Come experience the life change that Jesus has to offer you. So your, your, your challenge, your homework, if you so accept it, is simple. Take this card. Find your Zacchaeus or someone else and invite them into our church community. Invite them to join you next Sunday. And if it doesn't work next Sunday, then the Sunday after that. All right? Think we can do this? All right, one clarification before we, before we uh, move on into, uh, well, just, I'm, I'm closing. So before we uh, get out of here this morning, before you all jump out of your seat and go invite somebody to church in the next 30 seconds, one clarification. And it's kind of a clarification for last week and this week, okay? Living an invitational life doesn't just mean inviting someone to the table. It doesn't just mean inviting someone into our church community. Living an invitational life means inviting someone in to your life. And oftentimes, the best way, the easiest way, one of the most important ways to start is inviting someone in to our church community. But let me say this. It can start with an invite to church, but it can't stop with an invite to church. You, you get what I'm saying? It can start with an invite to church, but don't let it stop with just, hey, a box to check, here's an invite to church. Invites to church should turn to invites into our lives, which might even turn into invites into our families. I kind of want to give an illustration to just give you the end game, the end goal, what this can ultimately look like. I want to show you a picture of my family. This is my family. And uh, this is a picture of us on our family vacation last summer in Orange Beach. And uh, if you're trying to figure out the mechanics of this, let me help you out. The guy in the middle uh, in the blue shirt, that's my dad, Reed, okay? And the, the lady next to him, she's awesome looking. Sure, that's my mom, Angie, okay? Now, two over from that, the big guy with the big long hair looks like Aquaman or something like that. That's my brother, Mason, okay? That's me, obviously, my wife, Olivia. And then all the way over to the left, you see a big guy kind of looks like me. Uh, that's Logan and his wife to the next to him. That is his wife, Sarah. That is my family by blood, okay? But you'll notice that there's three other people in this picture. There's a lady all the way to the left. Her name is Nancy. She's a single mom. She has two daughters. Her, their names are Hannah and Deidre. They're the ladies in Peach. And they are the family that we chose. We chose them. They chose us. And it started with an invite from my parents to Nancy. An invite to church, kind of. Invite to small group, yes, but it didn't stop with that. All of a sudden, it became an invitation into our lives. It was kind of kick-started over 15 years ago with an invite to a family meal on Thanksgiving. You see, Hannah, Deidre, and Nancy, not a lot of extended family. My parents invited them to join our family on Thanksgiving for a meal. Kind of caused a little bit of a ruckus because oftentimes these things do, but they came and 15 years later, it's every Thanksgiving, it's every holiday, it's family vacations. The Presnells and the Duncans became the Preskins. <laughs> and lives and futures of everyone involved have been changed. 
You see, what I've learned from my parents really is that invitation into our church community, into a small group, at a meal, but ultimately into our lives shocks the world. I, actually, Hannah, we still have this picture. Hannah, the one on the left to my dad, she was married last week. Let's give it up for Hannah. Yeah, she's not here this morning, but let's give it up for her. She was married. And uh, my, wi- my wife and Logan's wife, Sarah, they stood in the wedding. My brothers and I, we stood in the wedding. It was a beautiful ceremony. And at the ceremony, the officiant, his name is Chris, he actually read this in the ceremony. He said this, Presnell is really addressing my parents, Angie and Reed. You never know the impact that you can have by having an open home. A simple invite to a Thanksgiving can have lasting effects. Hannah looks back saying that it was a moment I didn't know was a big deal until it was. Inviting someone into your home, inviting someone into your lives, inviting someone into your family while intruding changes lives. So thank you. This officiant's name, I said, was Chris, and he and I actually got to chat this week because I called him up and I said, hey, as you were talking, I was thinking, I'm about to give a sermon on this kind of stuff. Can I use this, please? And as he and I got to talk, we spoke on the phone and then through email, he shared how he had just observed being around at the rehearsal, being around at the ceremony, how my parents had not only invited a hurting family into their home, but also into their lives, how they had embraced them. They invited them into their vine and their fig tree. It included their church community, it included their home, and it also included their family. And he said it undoubtedly changed the futures of everyone involved. He said that as he observed, as he talked, he, he sat at the table with my parents and with Nancy as they shared family stories. And he said that he was filled with emotion, that it brought him to tears. It's safe to say that it shocked him. This is a follower of Jesus. Shocked because when we invite others into our lives, when we invite others into our blessing, when we invite others into our vine and our fig tree, when we invite them into our church community and our experience with Jesus, it shocks the world. Now that's like, that's like the, the end picture. That's like 17, 18 years of all kinds of hard and good and great and beautiful and ugly stuff, right? But oftentimes it starts with something as simple as taking some... This is my ID, not a... Not a where is my invite card? Somewhere wherever it is, starts with taking something as simple as an invite card and saying to someone, hey, I want you to come sit under my vine and my fig tree. I want you to be a part of my church community. You must come with me. So we're going to do that this week. We're going to shock the world with the love of Jesus by living invitationally and saying to someone else, hey, will you come with me? Can we do that? Don't hand them your ID. Hand them your invite card. Will you pray with me? God, thank you for today. Thank you for uh, another Sunday to gather in your name, to sit under the vine and fig tree that is your church, this place where there is equality, there's prosperity, there's blessing, God. It's uh, this incredible place that you have created. 
this church community that we all get to be a part of. And so God, I pray that we as, we, we as Christians who are trying to live differently in the world, as we're trying to shock the world with your love, with the life and teachings of your son Jesus, God, I just pray that you would help us this week. Help us be faithful, be obedient, and take this simple little invite card. And God, would you take that little thing and would you use it to transform lives? Would you use it to change futures? Would you use it to change families? God, you have everything in place for the rebuilding project. There's no project too big. There's no project too ugly. There's no project that's too far gone. You have everything in place for the rebuilding project. So God, would you help us go? Would you help us leave this place? Would you help us shock the world with the love and power of you? It's in Jesus' name that we gather. It's in Jesus' name that we pray these things to you. Be the hope and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.